how has critical theory influenced the way in which we speak about social justice? Is this new ideological movement a threat to liberalism? Well, joining me on the podcast is Helen Pluckrose. She is the co-author, together with James Lindsay, of Cynical Theories. Our activist scholarship made everything about race, gender, and identity, and how this harms everybody. Helen Pluckrose, welcome to Solutions with David Ansar. It's nice to see you, David. Thank you for having me. So, Helen, I just read the book and finished it today, and one of the key uh, arguments that you make in the book is that the critical theory and the various manifestations that we see of this idea in society is very much influenced by postmodernism. For our viewers and listeners who are perhaps unfamiliar with the concept of postmodernism, could you perhaps uh, enlighten us? What, what are the, the basic proponents of uh, this intellectual movement that swept through the world in the mid to late 20th century? Okay, so there, there's an awful lot to postmodernism, and what we're seeing now is the um, sort of bastardization of a few key ideas about knowledge, power, and discourse. So, um, you know, we, we'll if we look at those distilled elements, the uh, the belief that knowledge is socially constructed, it's constructed by the powerful in their own interests. It then gets legitimized as knowledge by the powerful, and this then um, becomes dominant discourses, the the natural way of talking about things that is then perpetuated by everybody. So we are all complicit in maintaining these systems of oppressive power, which in more recent years have been known as white supremacy, patriarchy, imperialism. So the original postmodernists who are most influential on this are Jean-Francois Lyotard, um, the postmodern condition in which he argued that there's we need lots of mini narratives and no meta narratives, no big stories about progress and science and um, you know, overarching narratives, even if they're true. Um, and he saw science um, as um, linked with um, power and government. And then there was Jacques Derrida, another Frenchman, who looked more specifically at language and argued that it was impossible to um, speak, to refer to anything directly. Meaning is always deferred. Words only refer to other words. Your interpretation is as valid as my meaning. We certainly see the influence of that now. But most significant of all, I would say, is Michel Foucault, who is now the most cited author um, and is, is certainly among the contemporary critical theorists of race, gender, and um, sexuality, he is dominant. And it was he who said power and knowledge are so interlinked that he made them one word, power knowledge, and said that um, yeah, knowledge is always just the construct of power. Discourses, we can only speak in the, the ways that are available to us through dominant discourses. There is an episteme, one set of things um, of knowledge that we have access to. So it really lost the individual and our, our agency to, to choose between ideas. We're essentially vessels that get filled up with these dominant discourses and we repeat them. And all the original postmodernists thought we could do was disrupt those discourses by deconstructing them. Okay, so there's the postmodern knowledge principle, which is an epistemic uh, principle, which you know states that objective truth is is uh, somehow unattainable. There's a kind of radical skepticism to that. And then there's also the postmodern power principle, uh, 
uh, which you elucidate, which as you've just described, is very much uh, sees knowledge as a product of power. Um, yeah. So, all right. So these are fairly arcane ideas, and uh, as you point out in the book, uh, fundamentally nihilistic and, and cynical. Uh, there was uh, an aspect of this movement, uh, deconstructionism, post-structuralism, uh, which tended to kind of break down ideas and was almost kind of playful uh, in, in the way that it did so. Um, and uh, many of these ideas uh, kind of petered out perhaps uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but then there was uh, something of a revival. Do you care to explain how that uh, revival took place? Yeah, so the, the writing of the original postmodernist was really prolific in the late 60s and early 70s, and it petered out in the 80s, because there's only so far you can go with deconstructing things. Once everything's, you know, sort of in a mess on the floor, then you can't do much more with it. So the next generation of theorists, and it, it all seemed to happen in 1989, there was this sudden flood in 1989 and 1990 of a second wave that we called applied postmodernism, where um, new sets of, of theorists, um, post-colonial theory got started a little bit earlier. It's much more like postmodernism, but it's um, related specifically to colonialism and post-colonialism. But then queer theory um, emerged in around 1990, um, most notably with gender trouble, um, Judith Butler, when she wanted to deconstruct um, gender, sex and sexuality. And then in critical race theory, we saw the rise of intersectionality, mapping the margins 1991 which um, defines intersectionality as contemporary poli politics linked to postmodern theory that wanted to keep the social construction of knowledge. Um, but it, they, they each said, you have to accept something as objectively true. So what's objectively true is these invisible systems of power and privilege that cluster around some groups and not around others. So that was seen as necessary in order to do any activism. If, if nothing at all is real or true, you can't hope to achieve anything. So what was real and true was white supremacy, patriarchy, cis normativity, you know, the belief that everybody is uh, identifies as the same sex as their reproductive system, heteronormativity, fat phobia, ableism. These are all accepted as true. They're the governing principles, the dominant discourses. They need to be deconstructed, but we also need to reconstruct with better discourses. So this is when we saw the policing of language really start to take off. Right, and Michel Foucault spoke about this power grid uh, that infuses society that's essentially invisible and everybody's operating within this matrix. Um, and essentially what it does is it uh, essentializes people, people's experience based on their positionality, uh, their uh, race or, or identity, other markers, uh, their sexual orientation, etc. Uh, so, I mean, as you state in the book, I mean, there are... Uh, many uh, cases of injustice that have characterized the world over the last uh, couple of hundred years, racial injustices, uh, gender inequalities, um, discrimination against homosexuals. Uh, and there is a very strong case to be made under a kind of a liberal progressive framework that uh, society needs to uh, you know, deal with these prejudices and to, and, and to progress forwards. 
but this is an altogether different set of values that you're describing. So I, I think that the big difference here is that when the second wave of postmodernists said that the legal changes that have happened over the 60s and 70s that outlawed discrimination by sex and race, decriminalised homosexuality, they weren't enough. They didn't make racism, sexism and homophobia just disappear. And they were right about that. But so postmodern theory was a good way to them to address um, remaining um, problems, which were mostly in attitudes, minds, assumptions, biases. So that seemed like a good way to them. Now, the liberals would see things in a different way. We would say that social progress moved as fast as legal progress. The reason legal progress was able to be made, the reason we said, yes, women should be paid as much as men. Yes, black people should have access to all um, areas of society, all lucrative employment. Yes, gay men should be able to have consenting relationships with each other, was because social attitudes changed and they've continued to change as we have pushed for liberal individualism and universalism that is as we've pushed to see everybody as an individual and not um, make any assumptions about them any social or moral significance to their race or their sex or their sexuality and to see everybody in a universal light as having the same rights freedoms and opportunities we have seen racism and sexism and homophobia get less and less morally tenable, um, even since the 80s. I mean, I, I was 16 in 1990 and there was still quite a strong um, element of um, racism and, and there, I got occasional sexism. Homophobia was much stronger than it was now. I've seen it over the last 30 years become less and less fashionable. You know, if, if somebody says something overtly racist or sexist or homophobic, they're much more likely to be regarded with, with contempt or pity and considered not to be very bright or very ethical now. So we do see a huge social change that has continued to happen with the liberal ethos, but the postmodernists would deny this. The contemporary critical theorists of race particularly would say that racism hasn't changed or gone away at all. In her latest book, Nice Racism, D'Angelo argues, no, young people are not less racist than um, older people, which I think is, is demonstrably wrong. Um, but it's just changed shape. It's got more and more hidden. It's within a secret code that people use and um, that, that keeps women down, that keeps people of colour down, that, that keeps um, trans people down. And so we need their particular critical theories to analyse all of this and to dig it out of our unconscious minds and dismantle our whiteness and detoxify our masculinity and do all the rest of it. Okay, so uh, thinkers like Robin D'Angelo, Kimberley Crenshaw, uh, they are what you termed in the book, reifying some of the postmodern principles and, and codifying them. And I think something that characterizes this particular set of ideas is that it's unfalsifiable. Uh, you cannot challenge it. It is invisible and everywhere and ubiquitous. Um, and uh, it is immune from criticism. It's uh, almost like a, a dogma. So you must either accept the edicts of this set of ideas, or you are somehow complicit in this 
system of patriarchy or white supremacy or whatever the case may be. Yeah, th this is where it differs. I mean, the idea, I mean, the, the movement calls itself social justice for a start, which is very presumptuous because, you know, it, it's as though the rest of us are aiming at something completely different with other um, political ideological movements like conservatism, Marxism, libertarianism, liberalism, you know what you're getting, you know what people are arguing for, we can talk straightforwardly about the pros and cons of it, we don't say you, you cannot um, question, if you question my liberalism it just means that you are a sheep walking blindly through whatever, um, you know, the idea that one has to be critically conscious is the academic term and it maps very nicely onto the colloquial term woke that certain people have been enlightened to these systems of power and privilege and they are the only ones who can see it you have a choice of either seeing it admitting your complicity in it and committing to dismantling it or being blind to it and in the best case scenario you're blind to it because you haven't been properly trained to see it in the worst case scenario you are willfully blind to it because it benefits you because you have some privileged status or if you happen to be a, a black trans woman uh, who disagrees with it then you're you're protecting yourself by um, standing up to, you know, hold, upholding the dominant discourses. Okay, and the original postmodern thinkers that we were discussing earlier, they were quite obtuse, uh, deliberately vague in their assertions, uh, but this new breed of, of critical theorist um, has somehow managed to uh, break out of the uh, ivory tower of academia and, and go into the mainstream. How do you think that that happened? What communication strategies, what uh, methods do they use to to mainstream their ideas? So I think this is an extremely complicated um, question. I wouldn't argue necessarily that um, academia um, was the the sort of foundational point and it spread out from there and it influenced culture from there. I think things were happening in culture at the same time. So this is why in cynical theories, we look at um, briefly the coddling of the American mind by Lukianoff and Haidt, who, which covers the psychological changes that were happening at the same time. And Jonathan Haidt would argue that the reason that this really sort of took off at speed in around 2015 is because that's when Gen Z um, started going to universities, they'd um, had this whole concept of safetyism, the idea that you need to have emotional safety. This comes separately from the theories and the, the sociology um, was covered very well by, by um, Manning and Campbell in the rise of victimhood culture. So we've seen changes in society which have mapped on well to these ideas in academia because I, I think we have come to a stage in history where you know, the, the racial um, equality, gender equality, LGBT equality here in the UK is still really very new. You know, there are, are people alive who can remember um, overt legal discrimination and uh, outright, um, you know, racism being absolutely normal. In South Africa, there are even younger people who can remember this. So there is a will among liberals to acknowledge the wrongdoings of the past and to 
depths of um, of, of guilt for very recent um, illiberal societies which oppress people on the basis of their identity and so there's a general will to keep going with fixing that atoning for that trying to remake society so there's no element of that and this makes the critical social justice approach seem much sexier and much more attractive because it tells people you can do this with power of your mind you just have to acknowledge your biases admit your complicity um, work to dismantle whereas you know liberals would say well it's not actually that simple it's a bit more complex we need to look at various various other aspects as well. We need empirical research, we need data, we need to look at where discrimination and prejudice still exists, who is being affected, how does geography play into this, how does class play into this. We need to work out many more factors and we need to do practical things, theorising and policing language gives the nice satisfying feeling of doing something without actually doing anything, I would argue. <laughs> well, I just so happen to have uh, the coddling of the American mind with me on my desk here. And I think one of the other themes that really struck me there was that in many ways, uh, the cultural climate is also encouraging a, a kind of a coddling of young people that uh, is the opposite of cognitive behavioral therapy and the principles that that teaches of that you're entitled to safety, um, that uh, words or ideas can be fundamentally harmful, even violent. Um, and then also uh, just the, uh, the kind of general changes, as you mentioned, around safetyism, um, and also trying to, yeah, I think one of the, the terms or the phrases that they use is that you should prepare the child for the road, not the, the road for the child. And I think that's yeah. a, a very apt metaphor. Uh, but in our own university system, uh, particularly at the University of Cape Town, uh, we had uh, the roads must fall movement and then later the fees must fall movement uh, swept throughout the country. And uh, it seems that universities have become uniquely vulnerable to uh, these ideological uh, movements. And one of the key principles of a university system is freedom of belief, academic inquiry, the ability to interrogate ideas, even ideas that uh, might be held uh, to be sacred in a society. But it seems like the, the academic space is, is, is closing down. Do you see any kind of pushback within academia uh, against some of these ideas? Uh, if not, why not? And, and, and what can be done to address this? I, I certainly hear from a lot of academics. Of course, Heterodox Academy exists and is a very valuable um, sort of organization for bringing together heterodox thinkers. We have our own academic um, subcommittee and uh, yeah, that there is pushback. I am hopeful that we're gonna see more pushback from Generation Z. I'm using the American um, pronunciation here because people, Generation Z seem to do that now. Um, so, and I, you know, I was encouraged to see that the people who were most opposed to cancel culture were 13 to 16 year olds. Now that could change. I'm, I'm hopeful that it won't. I mean, these ideas that have been developing since the late 1960s and becoming more and more solid and reified really do need rebelling against by next generation. That's what the next generation is meant to do. 
So I'm hopeful. I, I talk to um, student groups and um, sixth form colleges, high school, um, about who, who want to protect freedom of speech and belief and viewpoint diversity, about how to, to do that, to have a, a revival of liberalism, not a going backwards to the old style of liberalism, but one that's matured, taken on some of the insights which have come from critical social justice, uh, but still goes forwards in a progressive way that allows that diversity of viewpoints, which brings together the the best of all of the ideas and um, and let's just, just take them apart just and and discuss and debate and, and knock the corners off the bad ideas and and end up with um, with something hopefully that's good now the postmodernists would say this is naive the idea that if we just get people with for diverse viewpoints together to make arguments that this will achieve progress they'll say nope the dominant discourses will always win out but if you look at the evidence and you compare countries in which a culture of freedom of speech the free exchange of ideas the marketplace of ideas has been encouraged with cultures where you have to believe and say certain things, see which ones of them have advanced best in science and in human rights. I, I think the evidence is with the liberalism. And in terms of other political movements on the left, uh, I mean, traditionally throughout the 19th and 20th century, we saw a strong uh, movement around Marxism. Um, and a question that I've often had is, to what extent has Marxism influenced the thinking of this uh, kind of new left uh, or this identitarian left? Because a thinker like Herbert Marcuse, uh, he was very, very much a neo-Marxist and has influenced some of these thinkers. Uh, but at the same time, postmodernism was very skeptical of these overarching uh, meta-narratives and these kind of totalizing theories. Uh, so do you think that there is a continuity here or a break with, with Marxism in terms of leftist politics? Both. I mean, what the way I the analogy I find is most useful is if you consider Mar uh, Marxism to be analogous to Judaism and um, postmodernism to be analogous to Christianity, then what you see is that the postmodernists and the critical social justice activists who have come after them could not have existed without their basis in Marxism, but they have made a radical break. The central aspect of what they believe, Christians believe in Christ, obviously Jews don't, um, is, is different. So if you tried to criticize Christianity as though it were a mere expansion of Judaism, you'd miss the main point. And I say the same would be true if you try to criticize critical social justice or postmodernism as an expansion of Marxism, then you'll miss the point. We can go on for a long time looking at the shared history, the shared ideas, but we've got to narrow in, I think, on those Foucauldian notions of power, language and discourse, which are very different to the Marxist ones. However, I, I do concede that Marxism has had some um, significant influence in the theories that we see today. So we see, for example, I mean, Marx said, criticize all of the things that exist. And um, this critical attitude, this reading, this word critical, meaning the reading of power balances into everything, the raising of consciousness, we still see that 
Although in Marxism, it was the proletariat who are largely regarded to have false consciousness, and it's the privileged who are largely regarded to have false consciousness now and need to dismantle and recognise their whiteness. We also see, yes, the spirit of Marcuse. So he is definitely in there with his mark through the institutions. We know that he was the mentor of Angela Davis, the communist um, black feminist who was um, pivotal for the development of black feminism, which has a strong influence on intersectional feminism. So we can trace a direct line there from Marcuse into critical race theory, although Marcuse himself was very critical of the way the new left used his ideas. And we see the Gramscian concept of hegemony, you know, those ideas that are so dominant that they um, take power over all the others. So Gramsci was a Marxist, and when he was talking about hegemony, he was speaking in a sort of class-conscious perspective. But this idea of hegemony and dominant discourses really are closely interlinked, and we'll still hear the contemporary theorists use the word hegemonic. And I, I, I actually think there's some value in there. I would say that critical social justice ideas are hegemonic now because they do have that power. They do have the, um, they are a dominant discourse. They are significantly affecting society. That doesn't mean we're all passively getting filled up with it. We can and do critique it. And I suppose there are some Hegelian ideas, this kind of teleological trajectory of history, um, this utopianism, uh, this idea of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, um, you know, so I think that there are many resonances there with the, the kind of uh, older ideologies uh, of the left. Um, but I'd like to explore the, the issue of race a bit further, Helen, because obviously in South Africa, we have our own uh, fractious history in terms of race relations. Um, how do we, uh, at the same time, acknowledge uh, some of the racial injustices that occurred in the past, but also put forward this idea of, of universalism and also incremental progress. Uh, incrementalism is not something that really gets people fired up, uh, but is perhaps a lot more sustainable. And, and as you allude to in, in cynical theories, somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. used that language of universalism uh, to be uh, much more persuasive in terms of extending uh, rights to people who hadn't uh, otherwise had the, those benefits before. Uh, so, so how do we use the correct language? How do we put forward the ideas in a way that is persuasive and, and diffuses some of the, the kind of very identity-driven and sectarian and divisive kind of language that we're seeing today? I think to a large extent, this is going to do it um, to itself. I, I don't know what the situation is like in, in South Africa, but in the UK here, a large percentage of the people who are coming to counterweight my organisation um, to um, try to, to seek our help in not having to do um, anti-racist training based on these critical social justice ideas, uh, a disproportionate number of them are black or South Asian. So they don't believe they don't appreciate this American-centric, very specific ideology being applied to them. So the reality that um, the majority of people in America as, as well, I, I think I saw that 54% of black parents wanted to ban critical race theory from schools. And certainly over half um, of them believe that we should focus more on what we have in common than what we have 
um, indifference. So I think we need to elevate the liberal voices of people of all races. It, it's very, very easy for critical social justice activists um, who focus on race and racism to say, well, this is just um, white fragility and white comfort and you're, you're wanting to just make all the problems go away and just be nice and pretend nothing ever happened. But that isn't what liberalism is. Liberalism is acknowledging the history and the this sheer injustice and brutality of a lot of the history of the British Empire, of slavery, of apartheid. We can acknowledge all of that. We can teach it openly. We can ad address the very real wrongs that, that have been done. And we can still argue this was wrong because people who were human beings were being treated as though they weren't as worthy as some other human beings. And if we recognize that this is wrong, then we keep focusing on not doing this, not evaluating people's worth by their race, their sex, their gender identity, their sexuality, their ability, physical ability. We consistently don't do that. We focus on the individual. There isn't a black and white um, kind of dichotomy where we either have to just forget history altogether and, and say, well, let's not dwell in the past and um, everything's fine now and let's just move forwards. We have to acknowledge history without getting caught in it and without letting it continue to affect um, the future to such an extent that it ends up holding back the very people that it's supposed to and elevate and advance and help make upwardly mobile, which is um, largely in the US and South Africa, black people, and here South Asian and, and black people. So Helen, I often used to think that um, many of the young people who are adherents of these ideas, very uh, kind of radical and filled with useful exuberance, when they go into the workplace, uh, they're going to be confronted with the hard realities of uh, having to to integrate with the workforce and to uh, add value and uh, that corporate culture will have no patience with some of these ideas. But I think I was wrong on that. It seems that many corporates uh, through diversity and inclusion offices and various other programs are now very enthusiastically implementing a lot of these programs within the workplace. Could you speak about some of the effects that this is having and also what you and your organization counterweight to trying to do to address some of these problems? Yeah, certainly. When, when um, we finished writing Cynical Theories, um, we hadn't, this was before the death of George Floyd, the big escalation in anti-racist training, gender identity training. And, um, you know, that we, this counterweight hadn't been formed at that point. But um, what we're seeing since then is a great, a, a real sort of union of the so critical social justice industry and corporatism. So I've been watching this happen. Some people, I think, take a bit too much of a, a conspiracy theory mindset to this. They act as though this was a, a plan between the social justice left and the um, you know, ultra-capitalist right. But I think this has just happened organically. We know, for example, that the critical social justice industry is worth about $9 billion in the US. 
it is very, very profitable. And when you're earning, say, $12,000 an hour to teach the employees of a multi-billion dollar company how to dismantle their right their whiteness you you really can't claim to be opposing the establishment and the status quo and um, capitalism you you are a um, central part of it so that this has been enabled and I, I recommend anybody who wants I, I don't agree with all of his um, solutions because he is quite conservative and I'm not but Vivek um, Ramaswamy's uh, woke inc is a very good look into how this has happened, how um, corporatism and social justice have um, formed this symbiotic relationship. Uh, but what we're actually seeing, um, particularly, we, we don't have very many South African clients, I have to admit. The majority are in the UK with um, almost as many in the US, then Australia, Canada, um, Germany, fr uh, France and the Netherlands that's where we have most of our people from. Uh, but what we're, we're seeing essentially is white people being told to affirm that they are racist, they can't help being racist because they have been born into this society that teaches them that white people are superior. They're being asked to affirm that they're racist and to actually believe that they're racist. Now that's the extremely worrying because especially when it's taught to children because you know children can very easily be taught to be racist if they are constantly told that they that they are um, and there isn't much difference between convincing yourself that you do hold subconscious beliefs that black people are inferior and actually believing that black people are inferior so what we're seeing is quite a lot of teaching people to be racist I was particularly worried a, a set of teachers had this horrible training course in which um, an American um, trainer um, spoke about the need to make white people human again, and um, that it was virtuous to claim to be racist, and you could either admit that you were racist and commit to dismantling it or deny that you're racist and be part of the problem. But either way, you were racist and it was better to admit it. And after this, 40, nearly 40% 40 of the teachers in an anonymous survey said they were racist. And it wasn't, this was, you know, they weren't virtue signaling because they didn't know who they were, but they believed themselves by the end of this to believe black and brown children to be inferior to white ones, which was not a belief that they'd ever shown any signs of holding before. So that's what really, really worries me. And a teacher at this school has called their bluff and said, if this is true, we need to shut this school down. We can't have children of various races here if, you know, this percentage of the, the teaching staff are racist. It's not going to, to work. But we see this. This is how what white people are specifically told for black people it's um it's often worse they are told that they believe um everything that Ibram X Kendi 
um, believes, um, including um, those of them who aren't American, and that um, they all hold these critical social justice ideas. These ideas are being put out there as representative of black values, views and experiences. And if they try to say, no, actually, I have a different value system, I'm a liberal, a libertarian, a Marxist, a conservative, a Christian, a Muslim, um, then they are told, no, you're not, you have to believe in, in this. So we have had a significant number of people. One of our clients has res resigned um, from a prestigious job where he was a senior engineer because he just couldn't get them to stop racializing him and claiming these ideas to be representative of black people. He went for a smaller job where um, he's going to have less prospects but um, isn't going to be racialized. Other um, people have come to us asking for a set of affirmations. I will not be racialized. I will not be um, expected to believe certain things just because I am black or expected to believe that white people believe certain things just because they are white. We've had a Muslim woman who failed her test on Islam and women um, Islamic attitudes to women by saying they weren't great. She has to retake it until she says they are great. So this is the problem and the difference that is really not often seen. These critical theories of race, which aren't quite the same thing as critical race theory, but evolved from it. They, uh, they speak at white people, but for black people. And so this creates different kinds of problems. In both cases, people are being told how they think and feel because of the color of their skin, which is racial essentialism and wrong. But I, I think from what I'm, I'm seeing that this is actually more presumptuous on behalf, on, when experienced by black and brown people than it is when experienced by, by white people, because white people aren't being told what they believe and what their experiences are to the same extent. And it also infantilizes black people that they're just perpetual victims. Uh, you need somebody else, typically a white person, to stand up uh, and uh, address their victimhood. Uh, it valorizes victimhood. It, it gives cultural and moral cachet to people to be victims and incentivizes them to position themselves as victims. Yeah, this goes down particularly badly with people who, I don't know if you've read The Rise of Victimhood Culture, but um, that looks at, at honour culture as the one that came before dignity culture. So honour culture has the same sensitivity to slights, but it responds angrily to them. Whereas victimhood culture has a sensitivity to slights, but it, it claims status in them. So if you are telling somebody who comes from a background that has an element of honour culture in it, which um, some South African and um, African, uh, so, sorry, some South Asian and African um, people do, then they're going to experience being told that they are um, second-class citizens, that white people have privilege over them as insulting. It's an insult to their honour. So we will hear um, from quite socially conservative, often Christian or Muslim black people particularly, that they are insulted um, by this and they re respond quite angrily. But we get more um, straightforward liberal black people who just say, I just don't want to be racialized at work and I don't want to be, I don't want to be blamed for these theories which make no sense and are actually racist. 
<laughs> so Helen, can we take a step back and, and just think about the kind of broader uh, ideological aspects of this? And uh, it seems to me that there's a fundamental skepticism at the heart of postmodernism about the Enlightenment project and the values that underpin Western society. So do you think that, that this represents a fundamental assault on Western values? And, and do you think that Western uh, civilization, uh, to use a, a contested term, uh, is able to withstand these threats? See, this is um, where, where I don't think the, the term Western values is or civilization is particularly useful, because if we look at where Marxism came from, Germany, and where postmodernism came from, France, then we see, I think, that Western values and Western civilization are actually, that's where the, the postmodern problem is coming from. We've had quite a lot of immigrants from um, sort of West African or um, Middle Eastern countries come to Western countries and say, I don't understand these, this critical social justice thing. I don't, we don't, we just don't have this here and I'm getting in trouble for doing equity, diversity and inclusion wrong. So I don't think this is an assault on Western civilization. I believe it's a tumour within Western civilization. It's an ongoing um, form of counter-enlightenment. So we, we've had the Enlightenment project and we've had the counter-enlightenment project at the same time, always. So this is another manifestation of the counter-enlightenment project and they're both Western and they're both in battle with each other. And, and we need to make sure that the appreciation of reason science liberalism um, continues and the ideological um, and particularly the standpoint epistemology the idea that some knowledges belong to some groups um, isn't allowed to gain public dominance because it's really it's really, it's really racist you know cl claiming for example that that science belongs to white westerners is um a general sort of insult for all of the the non-white west non-westerners who are doing science and from whom we borrowed the numerals that we need to do science from so i i'd say it's it's a problem for liberalism for secularism for democracy for freedom of speech that I'd say that problem comes from a very Western tradition of challenging those things. Yeah, and in many ways, the Enlightenment project also produced the likes of Robespierre, Karl Marx, um, and the kind of uh, inheritors of those ideas. Uh, and it put man as the center of all things, had this idea of tabula rasa, that you can uh, have blank slates for human beings that you can uh, kind of make perfect with, just with the right ideas. So I think there's a very strong current in Western thought uh, around It is, that. and this is why I, I think we need to look at the ideas um, more strongly than, than the geography. At the moment, where I'm seeing a lot of the Enlightenment values, the defence of science um, coming most strongly is in the liberal and ex-Muslim community in Muslim countries. So this is a kind of attempt at pushing through a liberal enlightenment project, which um, so many in the UK, America, have become cynical about, see it as, as somehow naive 
Um, you know, if, if you say that you believe in progress and um, reason and, and science and the enlightenment, then, you know, that, that's slightly embarrassing. You're, you're, you're very naive to um, still believe in the myth of progress. When, in fact, you know, I, I studied the, the 14th century and I continued, you know, women were typically had 14 uh, pregnancies in their lifetime but the population didn't grow that's because only two of them survived on average so there's progress there's been a lot of progress and we need I think to get more confident with saying it's not embarrassing to believe in science and reason and liberalism the the evidence is in if you want to go back to the late medieval period have a good look at that see if that's what you want to be living in if not appreciate the fruits of modernity and my conversation with marion tupi i think is an excellent resource for anyone who's interested in the, the history of human progress and how far we've come i'd urge our viewers and listeners to check that out but now helen do you not think that there is also the potential risk of a conservative or reactionary overreaction uh, to critical theory um yeah. do you think that and there that is it, a possibility already, of that yeah. It, it, it's already here. We've seen the um, attempts to ban um, critical race theory, for example. It, it, it's, I'm actually quite amused that the Texas um, list of, of books which schools have to admit to having because they teach about critical race theory, it includes cynical theories. That's one of the ones on their hit list. <laughs> you know, so we, this is a serious overreaction. We cannot be to liberalism with illiberalism we can't start banning people who believe in these ideas what we need to do is get the believers in these ideas to join us at the table to submit their ideas to the marketplace of ideas to accept critique to argue reasonably rather than just say well you only say that because you're a white western man and that you're preserving your own privilege and it just shows your fragility and you know if you're going to talk like that you can't really join the table but yes we're seeing a um a right-wing pushback we're seeing it and particularly um strongly in america but um i'm also seeing here in in the uk which worries me a lot the rise of a kind of counter white identity politics so it's not like the original white identity politics which was just plain racism it's a reactionary thing. It's if we're going to have identity politics based on race that are coming from critical theories of race, then we can have a, we'll counter that with a white victimhood narrative and a white identity. But, and this is just um, more and more polarizing. And that's an, an essay I wrote recently, why I'm not a fan of the, the term anti-white, because I, I, that's another counter-enlightenment um philosophy and that we james lindsay and i um wrote a manifesto against the enemies of modernity in which we looked at the the the, the relationship between these two that we called the postmodernists and the pre-modernists and i i think we are seeing that pushback i think there's a reason we're seeing a big surge to the the right labor in my country lost its red wall in the last election because the left just isn't tra isn't trusted to actually be sane and have the interest of the working class at its heart anymore. Right, Helen. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, but I wanted to conclude with a set of practical, actionable uh, steps that people can take, because I'm sure many people have had their 
livelihoods threatened, their reputations ruined, uh, or are scared of that happening to them. They've seen it happen to others. What are some of the uh, practical steps that you can recommend to people who might be watching or listening to the show? Okay, so if you, first of all, if you're sensing that some authoritarian critical social justice activism of some kind is rising in your workplace, um, have a close look at it. Make sure you know what you're, you're looking for. I'm going to promote now on Counterweight's website, Assessing CSJ Problems. We have a traffic light system to help people recognise whether is this genuinely uh, an authoritarian problem? How serious is it? What are the things you can do? If you've established that there really is a um, critical social justice problem, if you are being... Um, coerced to do unconscious bias training, attend um, anti-racist or gender identity training, which makes you affirm beliefs that you don't have in your own racism or your own experience of racism or your own gender identity, then there are certain things that you can do. Writing a principled and um, knowledgeable letter objecting you you begin by saying i very much support initiatives to oppose racism or transphobia or anything else and i would like to get on board with anything that you're doing and that will be effective i am somewhat concerned about this approach that you're taking um, the reasons i am concerned are because you can list the illiberal aspects of it depending on on what is actually happening if you're being asked to do unconscious bias training you know we, we have a 42 page document which shows the problem with unconscious bias training there's plenty of evidence out there that it doesn't work and, and could even make things worse there's the problems with you can point out the problems with D'Angelo's ideas and with, with Kendi's ideas. And you can ask your employer to, to keep their what your workplace open to a diverse viewpoints. It's often very useful to point out that these theories that are being imposed on people are very much American-centric and they are not necessarily suitable outside America. They're not necessarily suitable to everyone inside America, but they're particularly not suitable to people outside America. So, uh, and you can point out that, you know, if you're, you want to, to help people who are immigrants from different countries, um, then not imposing this, this Western ideology on them is a good way to do that check out among your friends and your colleagues sound out because very often people feel like they're the only person thinking oh my god this is getting really illiberal but if I say everything anything anyone everyone's going to think I'm a racist and I can't speak up and they don't know that probably about you know at least half the people in the room are also thinking that so we find if, if people try to sort of gently sound out their colleagues by saying something like, "I'm I'm glad that we're looking at, at racism. I, um, you know, it's it's a, a serious problem that we've still got work to do on. I I wonder if it's liberal though, or if there's you know some kind of um, of problem with these kinds of theories that 
sort of see invisible power systems, you're very likely to have a colleague say, oh my God, yes, thank you. I'm so glad I'm not alone with this. I mean, you, you might not. So you have to, I think, be quite careful when you're going about this. But we have had a lot of luck with one of our clients in particular. She went from believing she was the only one worried to gently sounding out her colleagues by making some liberal humanist statements. People came to her. Now she's at the center of a, a group of South Asian women, which she is um, writing back against the colonial theory because she's discovered that more than half of her colleagues actually share these concerns, but nobody knew this until she took the risk of gently probing it. So there's the setting out your objections clearly in writing is the main thing that we recommend and doing so accurately and knowledgeably we've got walkthroughs for that I would say avoid meetings um, wherever possible because this is where you can be waffled at and um, people can deny that they said what they said if you have to attend a meeting if you're objecting to something at your workplace follow it up with an email saying here's a recap on what was said I sought assurances for this you said this I said this and then end with you know please um, you, you have a, assured me that we're not going to have unconscious bias training that I don't have to pretend to be racist and have this in writing so, I mean, I, I could go on, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually writing a, a whole, uh, finishing a whole book at the moment that looks like it's going to be about 100,000 words, the Counterweight Handbook, which suggests for ways for people to evaluate what kind of problem they're having and how to push back at it. And also looking at your, your psychological health. If you are in a critical social justice dominated environment, it is probably quite important for you to join groups of other people who are in the same kind of environment, who are suffering the same anxiety, stress and um, isolation, get a bit of moral support, you know, take um, extra steps to, to take care of yourself. And I also recommend writing a constitution of yourself, of your own principles, because if you're going to argue back against these ideas you'll need to have a really strong sense of what your own principles are if you're a liberal and you've grown up in a, a mostly liberal society it might just seem obvious to you that we shouldn't evaluate people by their race or um, you know we shouldn't ban people from having ideas that we don't like or punish them for them but if you need to sort of think through those first principles of why it is bad and be able to argue for them then you're going to come from a place of, of much greater confidence. So I, I know you've um, you've asked me a, a simple question, but the answer isn't at all simple. There's, there's so many different ways to to approach this and things you can do about it that I am I am having to write a hundred thousand um, page um, word book on how the different ways in which you can address this. <laughs> Well, Helen, if uh, this book, Cynical Theories, is anything to go by, I'm sure that your new book will be a very useful document and resource for people who are concerned about the spread of these ideas and, and how to push back in a, in a civil and, uh, and firm and principled way. But I wanted to thank you very much for sharing your insights with us. We'll put links to the resources that you mentioned in the show notes and, and in the pinned comments as well. And I would certainly encourage uh, everyone to go out and read uh, Cynical Theories. It's a very good exposition of the ideological underpinnings of critical theory and, and 
the damage that it is wreaking on uh, many uh, societies. Uh, but yeah, thank you very much and uh, wish you all uh, strength and good luck with your work. Yeah, thank you for having me on and, and do, do come by um, counterweightsupport.com if you're, you're looking for practical resources with a specific problem. It, uh, nice, nice to see you all. If you enjoyed this conversation and you're watching on YouTube, please do give this video a like and subscribe to the channel. Also leave your thoughts in the comment section below. And if you're listening on your preferred podcast platform, please do subscribe and leave a five-star review. That really helps the show to grow. My name is David Ansara. Until next week.